0: 7654321. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this, you crazy mother.
1: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now, here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dead Pundits Society. Joining me for a really great discussion on the role of corporations in the capitalist state is Steve Marr. If you've ever wondered just what the hell is a corporation, well, stay tuned. You're in the right place. You're about to learn more about corporations in the capitalist state than you ever thought was possible. Because Steve Marr is going to break it down for you, folks. Stay tuned. All right, folks, this is episode three of my Labor and the Capitalist State series that I'm running on Dead Pundit Society this fall. Many of you will know that episode one featured Raphael Cacheturian. It was a two-part episode on state theory from Marx to present. That was a really in-depth, highly theoretical, but also historical and political episode that we did there with Raphael. It was really fantastic. And that laid the foundations uh, for episode two, which was last week. I had on Leo Panitch. Legendary editor of the Socialist Register, among many other things. And uh, we talked about some of the structural limitations of left social democracy and how that has manifested itself at the level of the capitalist state. What does it mean to rule a capitalist state from the radical left? There are a series of challenges that have caused many governments in recent history to run aground. Now, episode three uh, features Steve Marr. Steve Maher is a friend and colleague of mine. He's also a student of Leo Panitch, and the resonances there will be apparent from the get-go. But Steve has really built on Panitch's model in a really exciting, I think, and innovative way. We're going to talk about his dissertation project, broadly speaking, and it's a really interesting project. He is working on the role of corporations in the capitalist state, particularly GE, that is General Electric. But this sounds kind of dry, but it has immense implications for the structure of capitalism and how to fight it today. So rather than try to prefigure that really complex argument, I'm going to get right into it. Uh, I've got a a B-side to this interview, which is really great. That's going to be available to my patrons only. Uh, it's another hour of footage with Steve. We just really got into it. We enjoy talking about this stuff. And uh, so you're not going to want to miss that. We're going to talk about the contemporary structure of corporations in the state and what that means for our political practice today. It has tremendous implications for socialist struggle. So head on over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at $5 or more per month. And you'll get access to that B-side and all the other subscriber-only content. So let's get right into it. It's complex, folks, but take your time. We get into the weeds right from the outset. But I promise by the end of the episode, you will be enlightened and you will know more about corporations in the state than you ever thought possible. (laughs) Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week, I've got Steve Marr. He is a PhD candidate at York University in Toronto. And he is the assistant editor of The Socialist Register. Steve, thanks so much for joining us this week.
0: Thanks, Adam. Good to be here.
1: So I brought you on the show because your research is really related to my discussion with Leo Panitch from last week. You are a state theorist in many ways, and your latest research deals with the structure of corporations in the capitalist state. You have a piece that has recently uh, come out from Jacobin Magazine online here. It's called GE's Switch, and that's referring to General Electric. And you talk about how shifts in General Electric as a corporate entity have really reflected the shifts going on in the broader U.S. economy. So spell. can you just give us the, the broad thesis there and the kind of direction that you were trying to, to head in with that article?
0: Sure. I mean, I think that one of the main areas that state theory has unfortunately not paid enough attention to historically has been the way in which the corporation itself is, is a uh, historically evolving institutional form, much like the state. So Poulantzas, for example, plays a lot of attention to the internal structure of the state and how different nodes within the state compete for power and influence and you have the kind of structural selectivity of policy options and so on that come out of that. Um, But not enough attention has been paid at all to the way in which the corporation as well is not a static, eternal, timeless entity, but is also a historical entity that evolves and shifts over time. Basically, the way I've conceived of this is that there are several different periods. We have the kind of finance capital period, which goes from the late 19th century until the 1930s or so, in which... You know, finance capital does not simply mean the the financial sector. It means a Mm -hmm. particular fusion of industry and banking uh, that was characteristic of that period in which we know the great finance capitalists like J.P. Morgan commanded, you know, vast empires um, that were unified into kind of sociological networks among the kind of proto-corporate entities that they controlled. Then the second uh, kind of phase was the managerial period in which the power of the finance capitalists as the investment banks declined, also uh, declined. We had a new moment in the separation of ownership from control where industrial firms especially became relatively independent from banks and they began to internalize a lot of the financial and management functions that had previously been reserved or or which they had previously relied on the uh, finance capitalists to do. Um, And then uh, since the 1970s, we've seen the decline of the managerial uh, form of of corporate organization and the rise of kind of a neoliberal financialized model. And potentially um, since the 2008 crisis, as I speculate in the GE um, article that you just mentioned in Jacobin, I think since the 2008 crisis, there's a a good reason to, to suspect. And there's a good amount of research that's been done to support this that we have entered a kind of new phase of, of capital accumulation in which we have a new finance capital model. That is a new um, fusion of banking and industry that has emerged um, since 2008 and been, and been um, stabilized through state intervention.
1: This is great. Thanks so much for that. Listeners of the show will know that I like to start my interviews right in the thick of things I like to get in the weeds immediately so that was a good overview of what we're talking about here so let's take a couple steps back and we're going to pick apart and dissect uh, that excellent overview that you, you just laid out there so one of the objections that I've gotten from some listeners and friends of mine on my recent series on labor in the capitalist state is well Adam sure I'm a socialist I want what you want but I'm not a statist I actually don't believe that the state is really important. We we're we're Marxists. We want the state to wither away. And ultimately, you know, I don't actually think that state's impact people's lives that much. It's really capitalism. Capitalism is what impacts people's lives. And so th- th- this objection really echoes the the kind of distinction that you find in the broader social sciences or like, say, in the financial press on, or on CNN, right, that there are states that operate and do their things over here and then there are markets that operate and do their thing over there. So there's this distinction between states versus markets. And you, you definitely see this in the sort of like libertarian right wing, right, where they say, get your state intervention off of my market, right? You now get off my lawn kind of like mentality, which is presupposing that, yeah, there's a state entity and then there's a market entity and never the two should mix, right? So yeah. you really – your work goes a long way in debunking the state versus market thesis. So kind of break that down for us.
0: Yeah, so I mean, one of the, just, to, just to lead in, I mean, one of the key things that I think that framing misses is that, as I was kind of gesturing toward in my, in my previous uh, answer, that the corporation is, is a, a, an institutional way in which capitalist class formation is, is kind of anchored and organized. So capitalist class formation is not a static thing. It's, it, it is historically transient. There are different strata within the capitalist class that come to more or less prominence over time. For example, you have financiers, you have entrepreneurs, you have managers. These are all elements of the capitalist class, and they're not created equal. They, are, they have different institutional roles in accumulation at different moments, and uh, the corporation is the way in which that's organized and kind of anchored. So there's that element of it that it misses. This is not just markets. These are class structures we're looking at here. But to go to answer your question more directly, basically, if you go back to the so-called competitive era or entrepreneurial era, of, of capitalist development in the United States from the beginning in the late 19th century. The kind of idealized um, model of this is that you have these like small shop owners who are competing in a relatively open free market kind of environment. This is highly, highly incorrect. Um, in fact, what you see if you go back to the 19th century is a highly fragmented, regionalized economy in which... Um, monopolization is relatively easily achieved on a regional level due to extremely high transaction costs capital markets are fragmented and primitive um, and as a result competition is actually severely constrained um, it's only when you start seeing the economy organized by the large institutional structure that we now know of as the corporation that you start really seeing competition emerging in, in, in a kind of in a kind of uh, national scale and also moreover I think, if you, if you go forward from the 19th century a bit and you look at uh, kind of as the state bureaucracy is first developing in the 1920s and 30s, you see that, in fact, the state initially relies quite strongly on corporations or fi- at that time finance capital kind of structures to stabilize markets. So even once you see that the national economy starting to emerge as a singular unit and competition starting to expand through the organization of these big finance capital networks dominated by the investment banks. Even then, the state relies on those finance capital structures to stabilize markets because it doesn't have the capacity itself to implement competitive market structures. It's only when you get the expansion of state capacities, especially after the 1940s with the New Deal and so on, which was the biggest Mm -hmm. period of, of, of American state expansion, certainly the most rapid it's only then that you start seeing the state able to implement competitive markets. In other words, sustaining competition between firms requires a strong state bureaucracy. In the absence of that, you have either the highly fragmented, regionalized, primitive nature of American capitalism in the late 19th century, or you have the state relying on the banks, basically, to organize and stabilize markets, which are still highly volatile. And it was only the Great Depression. And the stock market crash of 1929, that really showed everyone how badly disorganized or how badly volatile, how badly the the existing system of finance capitalism was able to mitigate the basic contradictions of capitalism. It required Mm -hmm. the expansion of state capacities, a project of state building, in order to implement competitive markets and not just rely on on bankers to, to stabilize the system.
1: Right. So, just to distill some of that down for the audience, and correct me if, if 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 you know if you think I'm off here, but it was more or less my understanding the quote unquote generosity and largesse of bigwig robber baron bankers like J.P. Morgan, who bailed out the economy during the Great Depression, that the American state didn't have the capacity, like through the Fed, or through the ability to print money or whatever at this time. Uh, Really in a coordinated way to resuscitate the economy after the Great Crash and the Great Depression. Um, Is that correct? I mean, it seems like the bankers really sort of uh, employed a a private bailout of of the public sector in, in a way that was kind of shocking and disturbing that the state lacked the capacity to do that for itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, more more of that would be the case in the crisis, the crises that we see in the end of the nineteenth century, where there is a string of very of, of a very severe crises, In fact, crises of intensifying severity over the end of the nineteenth century, but pre pre stock market crash of twenty nine, obviously. And the, and those well, that moments was the,
1: the, the first great depression is that correct I mean, exactly, the first yeah. great depression that we talked about happened in the 1880s and into the 1890s Exactly a lot of folks don't really remember, remember Exactly yeah
0: either. exactly and and in that yeah. moment you see definitely the, the kind of J P Morgan's of the world responsible for organizing the what you might call a bailout certainly for stabilizing the system and they were it was just dependent on their private initiative to do this I mean the state would in, at various times you know there is this famous story where J P Morgan was called in to the Treasury Department office uh, and given a blank check to just make it go away in one of the most severe moments of crisis in the 19th century. But um, by the, by the, one of the big things that changes by the time you get to the Great Depression is that the, the, the financial system has become decentralized more. So it's no longer focused so clearly around a few players like the J.P. Morgans of the world. Instead, there's a broader set of interests and players who are now involved in it, not least of which includes what is rapidly emerging as what we now know as, as corporations, like hmm. industrial firms. Hmm. And that made it really hard for the state, actually, to coordinate a bailout from from the 29 crisis, to coordinate the stabilization of the, of the economy after 29. And the decentralization of, of the capitalist class so that it's no longer organized so tightly under the... Um, under the kind of power of these finance capital empires, they they had a tough time figuring out how to coordinate the resolution to this. And in fact, you see GE's uh, executives, Gerard Swope and Owen Young, kind of behind the scenes playing a role that J.P. Morgan would have played in earlier eras as they try to uh, organize bailouts of failing industries, including banks, but also industrial operations. And I think this is one of the marks of the emergence of the managerial period, you see, you see the prominence in the economy now of a new strata of professional managers, mm-hmm. not under the thumb strictly of the financiers like the Morgans. And so when you get to the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt relied on you know, a few of these key industrialists organized into what became known as the Business Advisory Council, which he established through executive order, trying to coordinate this bailout, basically, trying to coordinate the stabilization of, of, um, of the economy at that time. So let's,
1: let's backtrack and do a little bit of bottom feeding for the audience. What is a corporation? We talk, you know, the left talks about, oh, you know, the corporations did it. You know, that's kind of the joke coming out of the, uh, the anti-globalization movement in 2000, you know, for a lot of crunchy college kids, you know, marching against, uh, you know, the big corporations, even though they're not exactly sure what that is or what that means. So spell that out for us. What is a corporation? Where does it come from and how does it function in, in a real sort of tangible way?
0: So the modern multinational corporation is an outcome of the finance capital period. It emerges as you, as you begin to see groups of professional managers who have control or possession o- over a certain amount of investment capital, but not necessarily ownership over that investment capital, but they control it and direct it, mm-hmm. that begin to separate themselves from the big financiers, from the big finance capitalists. And the modern multinational corporation is basically a group of professional capitalist managers who direct investment funds within networks that they control, that they oversee. So to the extent that they are industrial corporations, they possess productive assets that produce Mm -hmm. wealth, you know, and these assets can be structured in various ways. So historically speaking, during the managerial period, for example, firms saw their productive assets as concrete operations that had to be managed. And so in order to do this, they constructed, you know, hierarchical bureaucratic systems to manage and oversee these these specific activities. And they trained managers to oversee at many different levels, these productive operations. Since the 1970s, what we've seen is firms evolving into what I've called, following Claude Serfati financial groups. And the firm as a financial group no longer sees its productive assets as a set of concrete operations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but instead sees its productive assets as a portfolio of investments that they oversee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Assets, perhaps. Yeah, they're assets, but it's a specific way that these assets are structured. So rather mm-hmm. than seeing, say, the production of jet engines, for example, in the case of GE, let's say, as As a concrete activity that needs specific knowledge in order to oversee and, and, and manage, instead, the aircraft division is just one in one in, of, among many of, of a portfolio in, of investments that, that the managers kind of in, can invest their capital among. Hmm. so you know maybe uh, rather than seeing uh, aircraft engines as a, as a concrete problem, instead they look at it as, as a quantitative problem. Of, of return versus investment, and they have increasingly tried to encourage lower-level business managers, like people who run the division, the aircraft division, to come to corporate managers, the top CEO, the top executives, not in terms of a bureaucratic structure of planning, but as an inv- as investors. So they now are supposed to see, they now increasingly see central corporate planning as as a, uh, as a Almost like an investment bank that distributes a finite amount of funds among different concrete business operations, so they have to compete with other business divisions inside the firm. Right, the aircraft division is competing with, you know, the healthcare division f- f- for investment funds from the top managers. And in order to compete for that, they have to show that they can cut costs and they can re- reap larger returns than the other divisions within the firm. So
1: this is an extension of the famous quip uh, from the uh, then CEO of Bethlehem Steel, I believe, who was sort of widely quoted, I believe this was in the 1960s or 70s, the CEO of Bethlehem Steel said, we're not in the business of making steel, we're in the business of making money.
0: Yeah, was that Roger Blau?
1: Perhaps I can't yeah. remember exactly who that's attributed to, okay. or if that's even a direct quote. But I think David Harvey runs with that a lot in, in his sort of understanding of financialization, which you have a different take on. We'll, we'll get there, but but I think that's you know that, that's really kind of the, the extreme logical conclusion of this idea that sure we we're a we we're a steel plant, we have workers who make steel, our machines produce steel. Yeah. But we're not in the business of producing steel. We're in the business of producing cash. Right. And so you, know, you see the restructuring of, of firms uh, heading in that direction in the 1960s and 70s, as you mentioned. And this has tremendous implications on the structure of class, power, and the state. And so let's go back to this states versus market thesis because I really want to pick this apart. And I want folks to understand how markets – are articulated by and through the state that that this ability to even complete transactions requires just a tremendous amount of state structuring of those markets. Because if we're not careful, we on the left will we're, we won't. It's not, OK, let me back up. We on the left are reproducing capitalist ideology. We, we're doing it every day by talking about the market as this independent entity We are reproducing the ideology of capitalism. The capitalist class needs us to believe that these market operations function independent of state regulation. But they do not. As you have argued very persuasively from the earliest days of American capitalism, uh, this kind of just everyday transactions require a tremendous amount of state intervention in the structuring of those markets.
0: Yeah. So let me just let me just go back for a second, um, and I sure. think this connects to what to what you were just saying very very well. Let's think about competition. Um, it's not that the firm all of a sudden started caring about making money instead of making steel, as you say, in the nineteen seventies and sixties. They always care about making money. They always care about about um, profitability. What changes is the way that competitive markets are internalized within the firm. So it really is a good illustration of how market competition does not just take place in this mythical way between small shop owners or something. Mm-hmm. Market competition takes place within firms. So it takes place within an institutional structure that is, that is underpinned or, or framed or structured by state and corporate bureaucracies. Hmm. So beginning in the 1970s, for example, what we see is productive assets within firms restructured so that they are governed increasingly through competitive market mechanisms inside the firm. Hmm. So rather than rather than looking at rather than seeing a picture of you know capital markets in which firms have to raise funds for investment on external capital markets through selling stock or something instead we see divisions within firms competing with one another for investment funds from top corporate planners. Hmm. So rather than corporate planning looking like uh, a hierarchical rigid bureaucracy, where there's a chain of command that leads from the top planners all the way to the the factory level shop floor managers and stuff. Instead of that, we see an internal capital market that begins to take shape within the firm where individual business managers, say, of the aircraft division or of the uh, healthcare division or whatever, have to compete with one another within the firm for investment funds from top managers. And the way they compete is over their ability to say that they are going to produce higher returns than the other divisions in the firm. Mm-hmm. They're going to be able to cut costs, which includes offshoring and so on. And in doing this, these lower-level managers hope that They can outcompete the other divisions and secure investment funds from top corporate managers. So rather than this being a rigid bureaucracy, this becomes like a very flexible form of financial discipline on firms, right, in which market competition is used to keep down costs and essentially execute the planning function, right? The firm becomes a portfolio of investments rather than a series of processes. So it becomes a, a quantitative problem rather than a qualitative issue. Right? Mm-hmm. Corporate executives become the bearers of money capital rather than concrete planners. You know, business plans are increasingly drawn up by divisional managers rather than guys at the top. And then they have to compete for investment from the guys at the top. So this is a good illustration of the way that competition does not take place in some mythical free market that just exists naturally outside of institutional structures. Mm-hmm. And it gets back to what I was saying in the beginning – that corporations are often, you know, they're often thought of as monopolistic or somehow uncompetitive, or we've entered a new phase that's, of capitalism that is no longer competitive. In fact, what we see with the emergence of the firm is an intensification of competition, hmm. right? Comp- the, the American capitalism becomes more competitive along with the development of the firm. And as, and as this, these competitive forces are intensified and focused through the kinds of Increase capital mobility and reduce transaction costs that come with the firm. The state was initially lagging behind in the 19th century, and so you have the extreme instability that comes with the finance capital system, which is only mitigated when the state develops the capacity to do so. So, competitive national capital markets outside of firms, between firms, and competition the structures of competition between firms, only are really able to become what we would think of as the free market, with the expansion of state capacities. Before then, when the state was still weak, say before the, in the period before the 1920s and 30s, when the state was relatively mm-hmm. weak, they had to rely on truly monopolistic structures organized by finance capitalists in order to stabilize markets. It was only when the state's capacities expanded and its ability to implement and enforce competitive market relations that came with it that we saw the breaking up of what had during the so-called entrepreneurial period been actually relatively monopolistic things, structures. So, in other words, it's almost the exact opposite of the standard picture. Rather than us moving from a phase of competitive capitalism towards monopoly capitalism with the development of the firm, Mm -hmm. of the multinational corporation, what we actually see is a phase of relative monopolistic kind of market structures broken up and made competitive, with the expansion of state capacities, and with the development of the modern multinational firm. These two institutional structures, state and corporation, are what actually creates free market competition. Wow,
1: wow. So it seems to me that the standard story has just gotten everything completely backwards. Exactly. uh, In so many respects, not only with the states versus markets, but also kind of this narrative that we tell ourselves about the history of American capitalism, right? Um. So, so let, let's let's tear apart another trope. There's this idea that recent turmoil in the global markets, whether they be financial, housing, or otherwise, demonstrates that the American state is really losing power over the market, and that globalization is said to represent the way in which the markets have sort of become Frankenstein's monster and they've overtaken the ability of States to manage them. And now we are in a world where markets reign supreme and States are weak and they sort of stand by uh, at the mercy of the market. Yes. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a certain truth to this. There's a certain way in which you, as you mentioned, if you want to say if, if what we mean by the market is this increasing competitive competitive edge and, and this, this extreme logic of money capital and competition that rules the calculations of managers, that, that's, that's true to an extent. But the correlate, which is that the market has therefore overcome the state, does not necessarily follow. So unpack that for us a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's, that's an incredibly important implication of what I'm saying, actually, in terms of the way that this is thought of now. And I mean, this is, this is nothing, uh, this argument that I'm, that I'm making is nothing, in this particular regard, is not distinct to me. This goes back to the 1990s when you see uh, people like Leo Panitch um, dismantling the idea pretty persuasively already then, mm-hmm. that somehow we see states receding and, and markets kind of um, over, overtaking state power. But I think what I'm getting at, specifically with my work, is first of all, the centrality to corporations to this process. So corporations are not monopoly capital. Corporations are not the overtaking of competition by central planning. Mm. Corporations are the expansion of markets and the expansion of competition, including within the corporation, because the, 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 cap, the, the expansion of capital mobility and the reduction of transaction costs it mean that competition becomes much more intense. Mm. So the, the way that Marxists, I think, see competition or should see competition is as not, not in terms of the quantity of firms. This quantity theory of competition is totally neoclassical, and that's not, nothing in common with how Marxists should see this. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the number of products on the, on the shelves. Com- Marxists should see competition as an effect of capital mobility. In mm-hmm. other words, the more mobile that capital is, the more competitive it is, right? Regionally, in terms of its, in terms of its different potential investment outlets, in terms of the different products it can generate, in every way, and between workers in that sense also, in every way capital, mo- capital competition is an outcome of capital mobility. So to get at what you were saying, the, the only reason we can even have a global capitalism, the only reason that we can even talk about global competitiveness among, among different um, firms located in different national spaces is because of the role of the American state in organizing the world market. You know, the American state plays a unique role, a hegemonic role, in the world system. Without the centrality of the American state and the particular role of the Treasury and Federal Reserve especially, there there could be no talk of neoliberalism. Because you wouldn't have, in the same way that in the 19th century, you have in the U.S. a highly regionally fragmented economic system characterized by local monopolies and high transaction costs, and in 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 the 1990s and 2000s and during globalization during the glo- expansion of, of globalization as it was known you would you would not have a truly global capitalism without the expansion of the, of the capacities of the American state on a global scale now so what we see is the American state first organizing its internal markets over the eight, from 1880 to say 1940 uniting mm-hmm. a, a, a coherent national market structure from 1880 to 1940 First, relying on firms and uh, finance capital structures, and then overtaking those with its, as its bureaucracy expanded to create a more competitive internal market system. After 1940, and especially after World War II, what happens is the American state becomes internationalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now this role of organizing coherently a single economy has global dimensions. And this is what we call the American empire. Because the internationalization of the American state means that it plays this unique hegemonic role beyond its own borders. Right, and, right. and that has not just benefits, but also major costs. I mean, it's interesting to go back and look at some of the discussions, as I've done in my research, between American state managers and, and the heads of the largest American uh, firms in the immediate post-war period. There was, it was by no means universally accepted or assumed that the American state should take on this incredibly expensive international role organizing the world system. American capitalists after the war were hoping taxes would go back down and that they could kind of go back to normal. Mm -hmm. But what, 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 what we see going on is a very concerted effort coming out of the State Department especially to build support among American capitalists, for the project of global empire, a global informal empire, a new kind of empire in which the American state would basically underwrite and superintend, as Panach and Gindin have called it, mm-hmm. the world system. And this has come with shifts in the internal structure of the American State. Right. So whereas we see from the earliest days of the American State all the way through the 40s, the State Department playing the major role, and you know, certainly. Uh, a large amount of oversight a certain amount of oversight large by today's standards exerted by congress over the executive branch for example since the 1970s especially but in general as globalization has proceeded we see the rolling out of those apparatuses that are most directly responsible for the internationalization of capital and the rolling back of those apparatuses that are responsible for supporting internal you know the needs of the of the working class social welfare offices, whatever, nationally focused apparatuses are being rolled back. The, the apparatuses most responsible for the internationalization of capital are being rolled out. And that has come at the expense of the State Department. I mean, just look at what Trump is doing to the State Department. You know, this is, this is the continuation of a huge rebalancing internally of the different apparatuses of the American state and the reorganization of power within the American state.
1: Tell us exactly what does the internationalization of the American state look like? Because I think if you don't know what to look for, you'll miss it. There's been a lot of talk about how American empire is waning American hegemony is waning, it's on the decline, and that you know, there was talk at some point that China was going to take over global, you know, capa- that, that role as the global hegemon, the global economic and political power. But you rightly point, and this, this is an extension of Panich's work and Panich and Gendon's work, but, but you take this up as well in your own research, you rightly point to the fact that it's actually tremendously difficult – to superintend a global empire. And I don't just mean like oh it's really hard to get, you know, manage all of these other states and get them to do what you want them to do. That's not the thing. The the difficulty is is what it requires of you on the domestic terrain. That in yes. order to manage an international empire and 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 I don't mean, you know, it's this isn't colonialism, folks. I mean this is a this is a somewhat decentralized centralized kind of network of class and state power and regulatory capacities and all the rest of it. But what this requires of you on, on the domestic terrain is a tremendous amount of disciplining of labor of other yeah. of your, of your ruling class forces. They, they have to basically, you know, pardon the express and eat a lot of shit. I mean, yeah. labor had to be, uh, absolutely browbeaten through the 1960s and 70s and 80s in order for the American empire to continue uh, and to get off the dollar, to provide uh, the flexibilization of, of finance and investment and all the rest of it. And that required a tremendous amount of state capacity. And that's something that, say, China is probably not really willing to do. There's, China is terrified of its rising middle class. China is terrified of what it might look like to have to discipline its own population so that it can play that role as the global arbiter of economic and political power. And so, I don't know, I've sort of thrown a lot at you, but w- what do you make of all that?
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I think you're basically right. I mean, what you say is true. The, the fact is that uh, the, um, being the imperial hegemon, you know, the global manager of the world system, comes with huge costs. And by no means is it is it automatic that capitalists will accept those costs. So I think you see, you know, going back to you know the work, the classical Marxist work of, say, Hilferding, um, but also Bukharin and even Braun and Sweezy to some extent, you see this assumption that the state is somehow just the instrument of national monopolies, mm-hmm. That that basically you see the economy... Fundamentally tending toward what they called trustification, which basically just means organized monopoly. And you see, I think they, are, they basically assumed, and in some cases explicitly argued, especially Hilferding, that the state would essentially just implement the policies of the national trusts, of the big monopoly capital units. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you go back and just look at the history, almost the exact opposite is the case. The capitalists were incredibly skeptical about constructing a global empire. They, they saw this as costly and potentially unnecessary. It was only a small number of relatively internationalized firms who had seen the consequences of the breakdown of the world system that emerged from uh, the kind of inter-imperial rivalries of the, of the interwar and World War I era that, that were most on board with this. But really it took, it took the state organizing a pretty substantial effort to get capitalists on board, especially given the fact that uh, in Europe, you see the emergence of the kind of post-war social democratic compromises where the capitalist class in the United States is saying, why are we going to give aid to these societies that are just wasting it on these unnecessary social programs? What is wrong with these capitalist classes? Why aren't they fighting back? Why aren't they undoing these bargains, these Mm -hmm. these kind of class compromises? Mm -hmm. And so it took a lot of persuading. And you know the state had its key allies in the capitalist class that it used to uh, build support for these for these policies, including the, the foreign aid programs to Europe. But it was by no means automatic and I think that this this gets to w- one of the core parts of my research, which is that the key state capacity that oftentimes Marxists especially seem to take for granted is the capacity to organize the capitalist class right i mean right, Marxists... Right. the state- idea
1: is that the capitalist class. Organizes the state. Exactly. Perhaps exactly. Not the other way around.
0: Exactly. That the state yeah. that somehow the capitalist class organizes its own political interests outside of the state. And even relatively sophisticated state theorists who have read Pulant's as A Meliband still often make this assumption. That the state that the capitalist class is somehow able to organize its own political interests, at least on a sectoral basis, maybe, outside of the state, and then impose those interests on the state. Right? Right. And even Pulantzis kind of falls into this when he says that the, the state negotiates an unstable equilibrium of compromise among capitalist class fractions. Well, it's true in some way. But the fact is that these capitalist class fractions do not come to the state with pre-existing political interests that they are, that they are aware of. Right, right. Quite the opposite. These political interests and these political agendas are formulated by the state and not just the state as a coherent whole by specific nodes within the state who then seek to reach out to the capitalist class fractions that they most are connected to and build an agenda that way and build support for the agenda that way that they're trying to advance within the state. So the key, the key element of legitimation among among the capitalist class is just taken for granted by Marxists so often, right, that, that the capitalist class either instrumentalizes the state or Fractions of the capitalist class lobby the state for, objective, for their pre-existing objective interests. Whereas, in fact, the, pro, the project of legitimation requires the expansion of state capacities to organize the capitalist class behind political agendas that it's developing. The capitalist class is relatively ignorant of politics. You know, people who run firms, they're ignorant of politics. You read these minutes from these advisory committee meetings that I've been going through, and they don't know how the state works. They don't well, even, look they at end- Trump.
1: Look at yeah. Donald Trump for God's sakes. Now I mean yeah. that man of course he inherited most of his wealth and who knows to what extent he has control over his 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 enterprises but but the man's a moron. I mean yeah. just just extend that out across the the broad capitalist class and that's kind of a uh, a microcosm of, of what you get for these capitalist managers. Like, sure, they know how to make deals so they think and sort of bully bully people into submission because they have tremendous amount of uh, clout, power, and, and, and capital behind them in order to to bend people to their will. But there's a difference between, as we see with Trump, there's a difference between having the resources to bully people because they can't say no to you versus having a creative – uh, introspective kind of uh, you know view of of your interests and your your fellow uh, capitalist class members' interests and all the rest of it. It's just it's just not there. It's just not there.
0: Yeah, I mean, Trump is a particularly extreme example of of uh, an ignoramus. There there are there are many people in the capitalist class who are much more sophisticated than he is. Right. But right. but That's you're fair. right. That's I think. Fair. You, you, your basic point is right, I think, that, and, and that's, by the way, illustrated by the fact that the capitalist class is highly skeptical on the whole, especially big capital toward, toward Trump, I think. Um, but but your, your broad point is right. These people are not concerned with, with politics. They're, they're concerned mostly with making profits in, within their own sector or for their own firm. And so, um, you know, the state has had to take the lead in crafting political agendas, and that has required the development of state capacities. So when the Department of uh, Commerce was first formed in the end of the nineteenth century, this, the 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 new staff, newly staffed people in the department, you know, new staff members, new managers in the department, realized that the only way they could do their job is if they systematically are able to coordinate with the, with the, the, the dominant capitalists and the, you know leading the biggest firms. They, there's no way that they can do their job without, without, on an ongoing, systematic basis, coordinating with those managers. And so what, what they did was they organized, they encouraged the organization through the Taft administration of, of the Chamber of Commerce. So this is just a national chamber of commerce, that is. So this is, this is just one example of the degree to which, um, you know, these so-called lobby groups that emerge supposedly spontaneously in the level of civil society are actually organized with the quite active encouragement of the state. So the Chamber of Commerce, you know, the people who were trying to set it up beginning in the late 19th century, as you see this kind of beginnings of the emergence of an American state bureaucracy, including the Department of Commerce. um, Capitalists are highly resistant to organizing a national chamber of commerce. Capitalists did not. For them, let me let me get back to my own firm. Let me get back to to, to my own business. What I know politics should be left to the state. And so it literally took people in the new Department of Commerce to drag capitalists to Washington. They're very
1: isolationist as well in foreign policy. I mean they just sort of wanted to sit back in their in their corporate or in their boardrooms and, and make money and, and, and have tariffs everybody
0: else Yeah I mean, they wanted high, they wanted high tariffs they wanted, they wanted very protective to pre- yeah yeah exactly they, they did not want internationalization they wanted they wanted uh, they wanted basically the state to enact measures that would shield them from international pressures that was the main interest that they had if they had any and beyond that you know it was just for them let the state handle politics we they don't we don't understand what you want from us and this was the this was the reaction for years as people struggled within the department of commerce to organize a national chamber of commerce you know now this was in the
1: 19-teens and 1920s just to be clear
0: yeah yeah, starting in the late 19th century and then moving moving through the early 19-teens yeah Uh, culminating in the Taft administration finally succeeding in organizing a national chamber of commerce. So let's, let's talk about
1: uh, let's talk about the advent of the new deal really quickly and spell out this turn to Keynesianism because it, it, we could, you know, folks who are listening could be thinking if they're not careful, if they don't have this background, they could be thinking to themselves that this has something to do with the virtuousness of the capitalists or the state managers right because there's this nice liberal or progressive uh, homily that i you don't know they, they sort of recite to one another around the campfire this idea that we just need to go back to the the good old days where the state managers were virtuous and they cared about the national economy and they had a sense of patriotism and and managers nowadays corporate and you know and state managers are too selfish and short sighted and so we need more virtuous people in office and folks could be you know some of the listeners could be thinking that's the direction that we're moving in, but really you're talking about there are these sh- deep structural facets that condition the actions of state and corporate managers. So let's talk about what the new deal looks like and how that changes the calculus of corporate and state
0: managers. So, yeah, so the new deal was essentially the outcome of a mixture of intense class struggle from below uh, economic breakdown in terms of the, the great depression and necessary revisions to save the system, necessary reforms to save the system that were devised within the state and supported by a certain vanguard group of American capitalist managers. That was really what the New Deal was the, was the result of. And, you know, the, the me- people who were in charge of the most internationalized firms had saw the costs when the international system fell apart, when the American economic system fell apart. And these are the same people who, coming out of World War I, Right as the, as the great finance, finance capital empires are declining, these new, at that time, just emerging managerial strata claimed that they were free of what they called the quote-unquote buccaneering proclivities of the finance capitalists. These new managers were going to be able to technocratically and neutrally manage the productive assets of the country in a, in a way that was to the benefit of all, in a much more stable and uh, humane fashion and and th- this is what they call the new capitalism and as part of this they they did sponsor and support the extension of certain firm level benefits, limited unemployment benefits, kind of like you know sham worker representations representation in, in terms of uh, you know entities representing workers that were devised by the company themselves rather than you know unions elected and organized by the workers. They were just kind of like groups of workers that the managers decided would be fair representatives and that they they were happy to negotiate with. Um, So workers were given some limited representation in that way. There was limited unemployment benefits. There were kind of like pension programs that were expanded at the level of the firm. But once you get to the Great Depression, it becomes totally clear that these firm-level measures are not enough and that the new capitalism, the idea of the new capitalism, that these managers can kind of like in a broad-minded way uh, kind of administer at the firm level, American capitalism, in the interests of all, is revealed to be just b- BS, basically. And so a key group of managers, the people we now know as corporate liberals, basically shifted to supporting national corporatist schemes like the NRA, the National Recovery Administration, right, which were basically just trusts. They were essentially monopolistic arrangements at the level of individual sectors, which were to set prices and fix output and basically do all the bad things that um, supposedly uh, we we are all against as Americans or something, right? This is the official ideology. So they they shift they shift to advocating kind of corporatist schemes to stabilize the market through the state. And there's different levels of state intervention that they're happy with, different levels of self-organization that they're happy with, but by and large they, they start supporting the New Deal uh, state being expanded in order to have a larger role in regulating and stabilizing markets because they had seen that there's really no other way, um, n- never mind to ameliorate uh, class struggle and to, and to create programs that, were ho- that would hopefully demobilize the working class, which was, you know, there was a huge strike wave going on, right? It's, and as you get into the post-war period, that continued. So, yeah, the New Deal was predicated on bringing this kind of vanguard group this vanguard group of managers into state policy making processes and the state engaging in counter cyclical, you know, full employment economic policy basically.
1: Right. The idea then is when the market sort of flags and fails, unemployment, you know, is on the rise, that the government should be the consumer and the spender. Of, of last resort and take up where the market is being sort of deficient. This is the idea of Keynesianism, right? Yeah. Uh, the idea that if, if you need to, as Keynes once quipped uh, during a time of economic depression, if you need to sort of drop pallets of money from helicopters or whatever, uh, you know, then, then that's what you need to do. If you need to pay somebody to dig a hole and then fill it back up again, then that's what you need to do because the economy needs to be stimulated by state Expenditure during the time when uh, you know the, the the quote unquote markets uh, are underperforming, and so there are these these Keynesian managers that came into the state. This new cadre that had this vision. They were trying to give a lot of them were labor friendly, and we shouldn't uh, forget about that. You know, Robert Wagner was a senator who who, who put in uh, the Wagner Act and and, and uh, instituted a lot of the, the New Deal reforms that that helped uh, labor unions achieve collective bargaining. Among many other protections that they would have in the workplace, and um, you know there was there was this key component of civil rights as well that really started in this era, the first civil rights era, if you will, that is sort of not talked about very much. Are a lot of figures, key figures like A. Philip Randolph and others who were leading the way here. So this was a very progressive moment. I don't want to sort of be, overly belittle these uh, these liberal state managers, uh, you know, because they were involved in some really important types of things. It's also true, though, that they were busy giving the working class crumbs so that they wouldn't come after the whole loaf of bread.
0: Yeah, so the first New Deal is about, is about like basically setting prices, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? The big, the big fear being that you'll end up with a deflationary spiral, right, as, yeah. as um, effective demand collapses. So, they, so they, the first New Deal was about organizing cartels backed by the state to stabilize markets through price fixing and setting output. This and so was the on. National Ordination. Recovery
1: Administration, is that correct?
0: The, the NRA, yeah, exactly. The National Recovery Administration, which which is often referred to as the Swope Plan, actually named after Gerard Swope, who was the top executive at GE at the time. And it was, it, but really, it was it was it was a product of the Department of Commerce long-held ideas in the Department of Commerce about a corporate state. Um, uh, and Gerard Swope is more significant because of his location in organizing, his significance in organizing capitalist class support behind this idea that was already held for quite some time within the Department of Commerce. Anyway, so the first New Deal wasn't enough because it didn't, it didn't deal with the issue of effective demand. You can just set prices all you want. It's not going to resolve the underlying structural conflict that's, that's emerging because of the, the collapse of uh, purchasing power among the majority of the population. Mm-hmm. So the second New Deal was the result of, which included things like social security and a lot of the more socially progressive elements of the New Deal. The Wagner Act that we like to think of um, when we think of the New Deal was really part of a separate kind of phase of reforms that took place a few years after the the first New Deal, beginning in the late 30s. And really, um, the second New Deal is the product of class struggle from below. Whereas the first New Deal is a kind of result of the, the kind of managers who had been espousing the new capitalism ethos that I just mentioned. They kind of seeing the failure of that wanted increased state intervention to stabilize markets, realizing it couldn't be done at the level of the firm. The second new deal was indeed the result of intense class struggle from below. And most capitalists, except for those who were were the most intimately connected with the Roosevelt administration, like Gerard Swope, um, were very opposed to the second new deal.
1: Oh, yeah. And, it really conflicted with their class interests in a big way. It was a threatening uh, sort of policy arrangement in, in many
0: ways. So they thought. So they thought. So but they in the thought. long run... In, in their, in their yeah, short-sighted
1: in the l- uh, capitalist class uh, blindness, you might say.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and in this case, supported by many parts of the administration. I mean, Roosevelt was hardly an unspoken advocate of the Wagner Act. Quite, quite the contrary. He, ex- he extended relatively limited support to those kinds of measures. Um, but, you know, I think the, the key thing about, about, about uh, the way that this unfolded is that once Social Security was implemented, for example, you started seeing over time, you know, as capitalists, as, as the economy stabilized, not necessarily a direct result of that, but also World War II, you start seeing uh, capitalists accommodating themselves to Roosevelt and accommodating themselves to these programs that they had previously been so vociferously opposed to literally, in many cases, cutting their firm-level pension schemes by the exact amount of the Social Security payments that workers are receiving. So capitalists begin to see the benefits of this pretty quickly. Um, and, and, you know, Gerard Swope's role in the Business Advisory Council in the Department of Commerce was key to this, to, to convincing capitalists that this was not opposed to their long-term interests and that, in fact, their idea of this as a threat was quite overblown. So Keynesian measures basically work, right, by, as you, were, as you were hinting earlier, by automatically kicking into effect when you have economic contraction, right? So as the economy contracts, unemployment goes up, which means that the number of people who need various welfare assistance programs increases. So state spending on those programs automatically increases and should automatically expand the purchasing power and boost effective demand among the people that receive those programs,
1: Right. right, right. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, dismantling of the Keynesian system in the 1960s and the transformations that go on there. And then we'll, we'll, we'll break off at the 1970s and 80s because I'm going to bring my patron subscribers a special in-depth uh, take on the – all, and the transformations in the corporate structure that are leading to the, this kind of um, confusion, I think, about what, exactly what our political moment looks like. And yeah. so, I, you know, this is—I think—the the implications of your work on the present are really stark and really important. And I want to spell those out for people. So let's let's get our way up to about say the 1970s, and then we'll end the free show, and we'll go over to the B side for the patrons uh, to get really deep in depth about what our contemporary moment looks like, given this uh, this this trajectory of corporate restructuring.
0: So the, the, the New Deal kind of structure of state and corporate power was predicated, as we said, on this core group, this kind of core cadre within the managerial elite being very closely connected to the state, particularly around the Department of State, and supported by the expansion of the military-industrial complex, right, whereby the state subsidized a huge, really unprecedented in scope and size, national infrastructure of of laboratories and universities, which were deeply interconnected with the engineering departments of the most cutting-edge high-tech firms like General Electric. So, So what you start to see, though, is that firms increasing multinational scope in terms of the geography that they're, activities take place across as well as their increasing diversification leads them to have to decentralize a bit their operations. No longer is it so possible for top managers to oversee all of these far-flung operations and and increasingly diverse operations. So within firms, you see decentralization starting to happen. Um, At the level of the state, you run into by the late 60s, the end of the post-war boom right and the end of the post-war boom means you start feeling the pinch of what James O'Connor called the fiscal crisis of the state in a new way which means that basically you cannot keep expanding expanding state outlays state spending while the economy is no longer growing at a predictable, high, relatively high rate right. per so just year. just to spell,
1: just to to spell that out for people, the post-war boom—I mean, there's a lot to say about that—but just in, in brief, after World War II, the global economy was essentially burned to the ground in much of Europe and Asia, and so the American state was able to step in, re, uh, sort of constitute an American empire, uh, you know, or global capitalism, American style, you might say, and, and so there was a rapid expansion which uh, of, of, of economic development which really benefited American workers in a big way. I mean, this is where the birth of the American, quote-unquote, middle class comes from in the 1950s and 60s. It was an unprecedented era of prosperity. And so when you, when you talk about the end of the, the, the post-war boom, you're talking about uh, this sort of drying up of those markets and the way in which the inertia is kind of slowing down and then preventing the continuation of this expansion
0: yeah I mean basically, what you had as you said, between forty and sixty say mm-hmm. between forty and like the late sixties is a is a pattern of growth that repre- that that it basically consists of a rising living standards over time for workers you have redu- declining inequality and uh, a general sense that there's an automatic machine that just guarantees that your kids will have a better life than you did yeah, right right and this is all underwritten by continual expansion of productivity, continual enhancement of productivity. Productivity basically means that the amount that each worker produces per unit of time, right, per hour, say, continues to go up. And this is because of technological improvements and so on. So as workers are able to produce more and more per unit of time, the that, that basically fuels economic growth and fuels the, the grand truce, if you like, between capital and labor that prevented, you know, major social upheaval in the post-war period, generally declining um, inequality and rising standards mm-hmm. of living. So that begins to come to an end by the late 60s as, as the post-war boom slows, and rates of growth shift from, say, 6% to, say, 3% or less. And with, at that moment, the state begins first... This general assumption was that, well, this is just a temporary thing, it'll come back, whatever... But by the time you hit the 1970s, the the fact that the working class remains relatively high rates of unionization means that they push back quite strongly against any efforts to reduce wages to match the slowdown in growth. Mm. So as growth slows, if profits are going to be preserved at the same rate that they had been since 1940s, that means you've got to reduce wages, Right. Right. And workers are able to fight back against that and keep wages up and indeed fight for increases through the early 1970s. And so what you get is by the, by, the, by the beginning of the 1970s, what had been the slowing down of the post-war boom by the end of the 60s becomes a profitability crisis. And firms are now facing the fact that, that union militancy, wage militancy, is eating into profits in a greater and greater, to a greater and greater extent. So this means that the working class has to be disciplined. And the initial response of the state was to engage in the same kind of Weberian bureaucratic management that had gone that, that it had done since World War I. Mm-hmm. And the way that the state had, had secured labor peace and secured uh, the stability of production through the World War I period was by setting up, under Wilson, basically tripartite committees uh, where you have the business kind of representative, you have the labor representative, and then you have the state, supposedly neutral in between mm-hmm. the two. So this kind of tripartite structure was the key way that the state, the key kind of form of exceptional regime in the United States, if you like to use in terms, going back to World War I. So during exceptional moments when, when so-called markets couldn't be relied on to, to, secure the, to secure the society in the way that, the way that was necessary given the emergency nature of the situation, in that case war, meant that you had to use these tripartite bodies. So the same thing was done basically through the New Deal. The same thing uh, was done during World War II. And the same thing was done in the 1970s. The state started setting up these um, wage and price control schemes under Nixon mandatory, uh, under Carter, by the time you get to Carter, supposedly voluntary, although it wasn't totally voluntary. The uh, they could, the state could retaliate for failure to go along with the recommendations by canceling defense contracts. So it was actually could be quite costly, and it was, and a it was hardly and voluntary.
1: Stick, but you might say,
0: yeah, there was a carrot in the stick. Even though it was supposedly voluntary, it really wasn't. Under Nixon, they were mandatory. Mm-hmm. But st- establishing wage and price controls and using a bureaucratic structure to set to set the caps on what workers could ask for and what uh, manufacturers, for example, could charge for, for commodities meant that the state needed this elaborate surveillance and enforcement apparatus to decide when these limits had been exceeded, what the limits should be, and so on and such forth. So what actually becomes clear by the time the Nixon administration ends is that these wage and price control schemes, mandatorily established by the central federal government, are completely inadequate and can't work. They're not going to resolve the crisis. The real reason that they're being brought in in the first place is to try to force unions to accept wage restraint, but it didn't even work at that level. Unions continued to strike. Mm-hmm. They continued to push for higher wages, and it became clear that the only way to resolve this issue was going to be a pretty radical project of union busting right, right, right. And, and market discipline. So key figures in the state, especially once you see the... Um, gold standard discarded after 1971, you really then see the increasing prominence of the Treasury and the Fed, what you might call the monetary apparatus, led by Treasury Secretary John Connolly and Fed Chairman Arthur Burns at that time. Especially in those nodes, which are becoming increasingly prominent, there comes the recognition that this Weberian, bureaucratic, hierarchical administrative discipline, wage and price controls, planning mechanisms, is not going to cut it. Instead, they need market discipline. And that, would, and that basically meant globalizing, it, they eventually came to realize it meant, they, didn't, they hardly realized this right away, but it eventually came to be clear that this meant globalizing finance, right? integrating, expanding capital mobility through integrated financial markets in a radically new way that would open up working classes in their capitalist global periphery to exploitation by... American multinationals. Right.
1: So this is the process that is often called financialization. This idea. Yes. So explain explain that kind of notion of financialization, and then we'll have to break and we'll continue on on the B side uh, for my patrons.
0: So financialization involves two different things, two different levels, if you like, two different layers. One is the increasing hegemony of the financial sector within the economy as a whole. So across the American economy. And across the global economy, you see that the financial sector begins to wield a larger and larger amount of power and influence. Mm. The other level of financialization takes place within the firm itself. Mm. And this does not mean, as you get from, say, Greta Krippner, who argues, although Krippner's work is great in many ways, but she sees financialization along the kind of traditional left lines as the hollowing out of production. That is to say that Firms increasingly are are investing not in productive activities that are that are healthy for capitalist stability and social stability and prosperity, but instead are investing in parasitic financial activities that while they have higher returns don't have the same benefit in terms of employment and the kinds of like 1940 to 1960. Style American capitalism, the New Deal period, are conducive to that. So the idea is that those New Deal arrangements have been hollowed out by the shift of firms to investing in financial activities. In fact, this is this is not correct. I don't think so. The second dimension of, of financialization is about the way in which the financial operations within firms become more important within the organization as a whole and come to restructure the internal productive operations of the firm around market competition and the, the, the quantitative logic of money capital that I was talking about earlier. So firms, w- w- when you have, you know, the global integration of financial architectures, right, and the discarding of the gold standard, firms have to expand their internal financial capacities in order to hedge against the increasing risks and volatilities that are involved in investing in, in creating international value chains and investing abroad, right? right, right, they right. Have, the, the, the internal financial functions are essential to mitigating those risks and, and in, including, you know, engaging in things like derivatives trading, yeah. which become one of the most important commodities stabilizing the world system after the discarding of the gold standard. So firms, along with this internationalization, along with the increasing hegemony of finance in the global economy, You also see the increasing prominence of financial activities within firms and the expansion of competitive structures, market structures inside of corporations. Mm -hmm. So you see this intensifying competition between and within firms. And that's really what financialization is about. It's not about turning productive into unproductive investments. It's not about hollowing out production. It's about restructuring the way production works. Right.
1: So there's some key. I just want to finish up on this. I think that, you know, one of the things that that gets to me a lot is people look at derivatives and they look at the kind of the operations of finance as this kind of speculative froth that that is on top of the productive economy. And so what the progressives will say is, well, we need to sweep that froth off the top of your glass you know have have a more clean pour off the beer tap there if you will <laughs> nobody likes too much uh, you know too much foam too much head on top of their beer right just just enough we'll sweep the rest off and we'll leave the productive economy behind but that misunderstands how that misrepresents how the reason why derivatives originated in the first place as you say when when the when the global economy moves away from the gold standard for a variety of reasons that would require another show unto itself I mean let's just think about this. You are you are a firm of some sort and you are signing a contract to have uh, some widgets produced in another country 6 months from now. And you're paying today, at least in terms of you're setting the amount of money that you're going to pay for this. Well, you don't know what's going to happen to your currency or to their currency and the values of those things between now and then. So you need to set up these derivative contracts to ensure that if the, the currencies sort of shift in relation to one another, that you won't lose your ass in the process. And exactly. so the, the financial – the financial, quote-unquote financialization that a lot of people point to had, was more about a pragmatic orientation to keeping global trade uh, going, in the midst of the fi- the breakdown of the gold standard which which meant that currencies were free floating in relation to one another and the dollar could change in relation to the franc or to the whatever uh you know overnight yeah which would just tank these contracts in these, these, these supply and value chains that are going across the globe at, the, at that time. And so it really serves totally. a pragmatic function. And your work, which we're going to get to in the Patreon segment here, I'll let, you, I'll let you wrap up, but your work really takes up the way in which those pragmatically oriented financial instruments, which arose kind of in an ad hoc way during that crisis of the breakdown of the, the, the gold standard in the late 60s, that has now been taken up inside the firm, and it has totally transformed the way in which corporate structures function, in, in, in a really frightening sort of way. And it has a lot to do; uh, it has a lot to, of, of impacts on the kind of terrain, the political and economic terrain that we find ourselves on today.
0: Absolutely, Adam. And I mean, so yeah, derivatives are one piece of it, but but I mean, we talk about World Trade, for example. I mean, a huge percentage of world trade happens within firms. So when you say, when we talk about world trade, we talk about movements of value across geographical space. But what's not recognized often enough is the degree to which these movements of value are happening within firms or within networks that firms control. So when I said
1: a company purchases widgets, that's true, but oftentimes that's happening under the same umbrella, under the same corporate, within the same corporate entity.
0: right? or through subcontractors Mm -hmm. that the corporation basically controls, etc. Absolutely. And so the effect has been, and this is my key point again, about about the way in which corporations are institutional anchors of class formation, And and that corporations themselves are in fact also historically evolving all the time. We can't just say the corporation and expect that it looks the same in 2016 as it does in 1940. It looks very, very different. And part of that has to do with the restructuring of the world economy, right? So what you're, what you're referring to over the 1970s as, you know, the gold standard breaks down and we see the increasing international, uh, international integration of finance and so on, is that it actually transforms the way that the firm looks and the way that corporate power is, is organized in, in concrete historical terms. This means, you know, not just internationalizing production, but also expanding the financial activities of these firms as well. It's necessary to oversee and manage those those global global integrated uh, supply chains and value structures, as you're saying.
1: So that's a fan, that's a fantastic teaser. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna break there, and we're gonna pick up the implications of this on the class structure and the political terrain today. Because one of the arguments that I think you're gonna make, we talked about this off air, is that. The capitalist class and the way in which uh, the state is now arranged has really put a lot of limitations on the political class in terms of what kind of promises it can make. Right. So if if the demo, if the centrist the neoliberal centrist Democrats appear to be stuck in terms of offering or not offering uh, certain policies to the American people, which might make them successful, a la Bernie Sanders, for example, we can find the origins of those limitations. In this transformed corporate uh, ruling class structure as it exists in the state
0: yeah by the way, and also limits on what the right can offer as alternatives
1: yeah, true very true. yeah very true absolutely <laughs> the, this you see you see a lot of them moving away from trump 's sort of fanatical isolationism or, or, or at times you know what it looks like fanatical isolationism
0: is that even a viable strategy can he realistically offer this, uh, you know, this America first vision is to what extent can this go beyond rhetoric? Yeah. I think this is. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, for, you know, uh, Connor Kilpatrick wrote a really great piece that appeared in print and Jacobin uh, about Steve Bannon's thwarted, uh, thwarted national socialism. Uh, that and, and, yeah. and, and that really does. I mean, you have a lot to say. We'll we'll talk about that on the B side about how the worst of what we thought would be fascism and national socialism under Trump has not come to fruition precisely because of the way in which these corporate structures are organized in both in the state and across the globe. That just this kind of like isolationist America first uh, national socialist Nazi style um, ethno state productive, you know, sort of project. It just doesn't jive with the demands of, of the corporate structure right now and which means that it fell flat because ultimately, you know, they Trump's going to Trump's going to need the backing of of these these forces.
0: Although one one should add that um, the authoritarian possibilities of Trumpism has also emerged on the basis of the the neoliberal authoritarian restructuring of the state since the 1970s uh, yes, especially. Yes. That's that's a that's a, that's so, a key distinction there, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the empowerment of the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve, for example, which I was mentioning earlier, has also come with a, a program for so-called you know, uh, regulatory independence, which basically means it's neoliberal jargon for authoritarianism. Yeah, for sure. It's neoliberal jargon for the Congress or any kind of democratic institutions are irrelevant to the determinations, the technocratic and neutral determinations of these, of these highly undemocratic agencies, Right. So yeah, for sure. for that sure. kind of that kind of technocracy, the, the authoritarian neoliberal technocracy has played a major role in, in the authoritarian restructuring of the state, which Trump now commands.
1: Yeah, that, that that's a really crucial point. I'm glad you made it. And we're going to expand on that and get down into the de- details at the, the sort of, uh, you know, fine grains of that argument on the B side for my patrons. Uh, because what I the distinction I try to make here, and we're going to build on there, is that there, you know, we have to distinguish between what people just sort of broadly refer to as fascism, right, versus what's I think, as you rightly point to, a far greater threat, which is uh, neoliberal authoritarianism. Um,
0: yeah, I agree. It's not even a threat; it's a reality. It's, a, it's the reality. It's, 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 it's been
1: the reality, and so yeah. you know, it's 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 the undermining of any kind of democratic or representational politics in society, and right. so. So join us over on patreon.com slash deadpundits for the B-side. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Thanks again to Steve Marr, and I hope you all enjoyed that very much. I know I learned a lot talking about the relationship between the state and the market and how corporations actually structure competition inside of themselves increasingly. It's a wild world we're living in, folks, and uh, socialism for regular-ass people is certainly determined by these transformations of the corporate entity. So it's really important that we get up to speed on this, folks. Check me out on the B side. We had a really great conversation about the contemporary meaning of all of this nonsense, all of this really hyper-theoretical, historical, uh, social-scientific nonsense. It has tremendous resonances on our socialist and political action today. This is not just an academic exercise, folks. This is about political practice and strategy, and ultimately it's about winning. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits, subscribe at $5 or more a month, and you'll get access to that B-side. With Steve Marr, I've got content up from Leo Panich. got a lot of exclusive content for my patrons over there. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks, everybody, for the support. Tell your friends. Share this on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. Spread the word. Dead Pundits labor and capitalist state series fall 2017 is well underway and I think my guests are killing it so I want to get it out there to as many people as possible all right until next week folks dead pundit out
0: <laughs> oh this you crazy mother